Welcome to the Weird Warriors Podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode, we are going on a bit of a special mission, and Rich has a little something to tell you about it. Retroactive history first. Last summer, the organization Dream Flights came into my area. They offer free flights for World War II veterans in vintage open cockpit Stearman biplanes, which were the primary trainers of the era. A Navy World War II vet buddy of mine, Charlie, wanted to go flying but had no way to get there. Yeah, the hell you don't. I took the day off work, dressed up in my World War II uniform, picked him up, and drove him to the airport for his flight. It was hard for a 90-some-year-old man to squeeze into that cockpit, but he did it and had an awesome flight. Fast forward to a couple weeks ago. I'd refused his offer to pay for gas money, so he repaid me a different way. He got me a present off eBay, a 1945 edition of Mail Call, M-A-L-E, by Milton Kniff, 112 standalone GI comic strips featuring the effortless war activities of Miss Lace, a hot little number doing all she can for the morale of the enlisted U.S. servicemen. This thing is amazing. I could leave this thing laying out in an encampment. My dad has a first printing of At the Front by Bill Malden that this will look great next to. Incredible pickup. Also, as mentioned in Weird War Tales 28, Max mentioned seeing some sort of shrunken head toy as a kid. I went looking upon listening to the episode and being reminded, knowing Max wouldn't, Vincent Price shilled shrunken head kits in 1975. The head was an apple, which, when exposed to a lamp, would shrink up and you could apply eyes, lips, hair, etc. Two sellers on eBay wanted 150 and 400 bucks for it. Vintage Vincent Price kitsch? Tempting. Very tempting. Intel Report. Jack Boot and Iron Heel. A four-issue miniseries by IDW that ran from June to November of 2016. Created by Max Milgate. Englishman Eddie Ironheel Neal's promising career as a footballer was cut short with the outbreak of World War II. No longer expected to shoot goals as a center forward for West Ham United Football Club, now he's expected to shoot down Nazis as a tail gunner and a Lancaster bomber. Shot down over Germany, Neal is captured by a Nazi patrol and sent to Lungholz Lufzig, a POW camp within the walls of a medieval castle on the shores of a frozen lake. It's not long before unexplained incidents begin to occur within the castle. As fear spreads and the death count climbs, it's clear that something supernatural has been unleashed. And hey, when I visited the Grand Comics database to check some info for this Intel report, I discovered they had no cover scans on file for the miniseries. Well, let me help you out there. Once again, dear listeners, the Weird Warriors podcast is doing its best to make your comic experience more fulfilling. Moving on to the episode in question. Visiting the next five All-American Men of War, GI Combat, Our Army at War, Our Fighting Forces, and Star Spangled War stories are collectively known as the Big Five, and were well represented in the first seven reprint issues of Weird War Tales. But DC turned out five other war comic series after those first five premiered. I've always called them the next five. All Out War, Blitzkrieg, Captain Storm, Men of War, and Weird War Tales. We visit 
weird war tales almost every episode of this show. And with 124 issues, it was by far the most successful title of the next five. So we're going to this episode to acknowledge one story from each of the other four. Yes, we will. But first, after all of that information gets digested by our listeners out there, we'll, we'll let them chew on it and take a small podcast promo break. Spotlight, yet another fantastic show out there in the podcast sphere. And when we get back, we'll be taking a look at the first of the next five. Santa, who's there? Hyperion to a Santa. Follow Siskoid's deep scene-by-scene dive into adaptations of Shakespeare's Hamlet on Hyperion to a Satyr, the Fire and Water Network's Hamlet podcast. To listen or not to listen isn't the question, as you well know. Kenneth Branagh, Derek Jacobi, Mel Gibson, Lawrence Olivier, Ethan Hawke, David Tennant, Classics Illustrated, and many more covered every episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com or where you usually get your podcasts. And we're back. So, as I said before the break, we're going to start taking a look at the first of our spotlighted issues of the next five. And that's going to be a story from a title known as Blitzkrieg. Issue number one. The story is called Enemy. It's 11 pages long. Script is by Bob Conagher. Art by Rick Strauss. Synopsis for this story goes a little something like this. This is Radio Warsaw. As long as you hear our national anthem, you will know that Warsaw has not fallen beneath the boot of the Nazi invader. Three German soldiers, Franz, Ludwig, and Hugo, are taking a break from the fighting. A nearby loudspeaker is broadcasting the anthem. Franz admires the music that reminds him of Chopin. As Hugo takes a drink from his canteen, a bullet rips through it. Polish resistance in a house on the corner. A sergeant orders the three Germans to blitz it. Their fire quickly eradicates enemy resistance until only a woman and a boy remain. A call to cease fire is countermanded, and the three Germans mow the two remaining civilians down. This is Radio Warsaw. As long as you hear our national anthem, Warsaw still stands against the Huns. As the Germans move through the city, they come under machine gun fire from a bakery. Hugo and Ludwig dodge the fire and get close enough to lob potato mashers into the window. Three Poles look in horror at their deaths before the grenades explode. Amazingly, two of the Poles survive the blast and greet the charging Germans with pistol fire. Three Germans rake the poles with MP-40 fire and clear the bakery. Breaking the action, they sit among the Polish corpses and enjoy some bread as civilians flee outside. Warsaw still stands against the Hun invader. A young boy carrying a violin case sticks his head inside. Mr. Borski, get out of the bakery, quit! His plea is cut short by a burst of fire from Hugo. Franz chews him out. You shot a civilian! Have not our own men been shot by civilians? He retorts. Ludwig piles on. 
I'll bet your civilian was carrying explosives in his violin case. Franz opens up the case, pulls out a bullet-riddled violin. At that moment, a tank rumbles up. The lieutenant commanding it orders the sergeant to gather his men and follow him. They are going to silence the enemy radio station that is broadcasting the Polish anthem. Warsaw still stands against the Huns! As the German column approaches the target, comes under sniper fire. Three of them fall before the panzer returns fire and blows a hole in the building. As the Germans advance, a Molotov cocktail flies out of a window and smashes against the panzer. The lieutenant is trapped by the flames and burns. Three Germans charge through the opening in the building and engage the five Polish defenders they find there. One is a woman. The radio announcer broadcasts to the last. This is Radio Warsaw. As long as you hear the Polish national anthem, Warsaw still stands. A last burst from Hugo destroys the record that plays the anthem. The song is kaput. So is Poland. And as the Germans continue their advance through the streets, an old man looks down on them from his apartment window, places a record marked Polish National Anthem on his record player, moves the needle to play it. Killjoy, page one, panel one. Sigh. They have that weird red and blue swastika banner that's often portrayed in the DC books flying over Poland. Not a good start for a book about the German side of the war. Also, the three main characters are all carrying MP40 submachine guns. This early in the war, most everyone probably would have been carrying the Car 98K rifle. But on page five, Panel three, a Polish fighter is firing a Bren gun. I'd love to know how he got one of those in September of 1939. Comments and commendations. Rick Estrada did a lot of work in the DC war books, if I remember correctly, but I've never really cared for it. It just has this weird cartoony style to it that often detracts from the story, for me anyway. That said, you don't see a single Nazi armband in the story, so power to them. There's one on the Kubert drawn cover, but no, that's the cover. Of course, they might not be Nazis at all, but Wehrmacht. Not that that portrays them in any better a light. As the war in Ukraine grinds on, this story resonates with it. There's a reason Poland is sending so much assistance to that fight. Page six, panels five and six. Our three protagonists enjoy lunch sitting with the bodies of the men they just killed while Bruno exclaims, War's not so bad. Sometimes I dwell on that one for a bit. And page eight, panel two, a somber Franz holding the bullet riddled violin that belonged to the kid Bruno had just gunned down. I get the idea you're supposed to sympathize a bit with Franz. He seems to be the conscience of the three, again, for all the good it does. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I guess I should have mentioned at the top that Blitzkrieg was an experiment by DC to uh, do a book from the German perspective. In World War II, uh, as Rachel mentioned later on, much like they had had success with Enemy Ace, a book that centered on the enemy's point of view. That being said, I got to disagree on Rich's appraisal of Estrada. I've always found his work to be very similar in tone to Alex Toth's in many ways, filled with more lines and hatching than Toth's. And yes, perhaps a touch more cartoony or abstracted when it comes to the faces and so on. But 
I find that touch has a similar effect that it can have in a well-done anime or manga. The archetypal faces let you see more than just one person, driving home the universality of the experience portrayed on the page. It works for me here, for sure. And in a similar vein of technique, the rest of the environment, even the characters' bodies, are rendered pretty realistically, allowing for the same effect that, again, Japanese manga often aims for abstracted but recognizable characters trapped in very real, often very brutal and disturbing circumstances. For me, this quality in the art helped hammer the horrible messages of this story home even harder. The callousness of the soldiers on display, especially in that scene amidst the ruins of the bakery that you mentioned, is contrasted sharply by the staunch resistance of the Polish people. This one is really going to stick with me. And going to talk about the comic in general. Blitzkrieg ran for only five issues from January, February to September, October 1976. I don't know if Conger and company were trying to capture some more of that enemy ace magic in 1976, but this title was doomed to failure. Killing civilians, murdering prisoners, disrespecting the dead. Who wants to read that? Alan Asherman did write some interesting articles in the title about the decision to run this book and asking the question of Nazism was still around. Issue three, hint, it is even about 45 years after he wrote the article and they ain't hiding as much as they used to. They did backup stories about the Huns too. Not a bad book, but like I said, this ain't Hans von Hammer. All right, so that's our first of the next five. And uh, since we've... Uh... We've covered that. Well, we're going to move on and have Rich take you through the second of our spotlighted issues from the next five. Men of War, number 11. Burke Stoughton. 12 pages. Script by Roger McKenzie. Penciled by Dick Ayers. Inked by Romeo Tangal. Captain Ulysses Hazard, a.k.a. Gravedigger, climbs up a stone wall with rope coiled around his shoulder and a knife in his teeth. Reaching the top, he sees Burkstatten, a Nazi death camp with chimneys billowing black smoke into the sky. He quickly kills the sentry he finds there and tosses the body over the wall, where four children carrying MP40s wait. Tossing the rope down, Gravedigger helps the kids climb atop the wall. The kids are searching for their mother, Anna, and Gravedigger felt obligated to join them on their mission to give them a chance to survive. As the kids run off to search, Another sentry approaches, mistaking Gravedigger for the dead guard, and begins to make small talk about how well the war was going. Gravedigger stuns this new guard with a pair of savage lefts and is shocked to discover that the guard is just a kid. He warns the guard to keep quiet, or else. The guard protests, you can't do this. Defeer has said I am an Aryan, one of the master race, and you, you're, I'm a Gravedigger, son. Hazard cuts him off with a wave of the knife. But right now I'm looking for a lady. Her name's Anna. Gravedigger shows the sentry a photo of Anna in a locket, who doesn't remember seeing her. However, she is attractive. For a Jew, if she lives, Kruger would have her. Von Kruger, the surgeon's general of the camp, and the guard points out the hospital below. Gravedigger pulls the guard down just before a searchlight passes over them, and the guard exclaims that the Fuhrer himself had supervised the construction of Burkstatten. It's a fortress. There's no hope of escaping alive. Meanwhile, the children are searching the camp for the mother with no success. 
discovering a barracks filled with sickly female captives, Marie, the oldest child, orders the three other kids to get the prisoners to the train as Captain Hazard had instructed. There's one more place she wants to check as she heads for the hospital. Gravedigger, dragging the young sentry with him, kicks down the door of the hospital. Challenged by a guard, Gravedigger pushes the captive out of the way and mows the guard down. The kid doesn't understand why the Americans saved his life if they were enemies. Continuing the search, they find the room where Von Kruger keeps his patients. Opening it, the two men are shocked to discover Anna unconscious, hooked up with wires to a beeping machine. Gravedigger grabs the sentry and demands to know what Von Kruger has done. The young sentry begins to cry. I didn't know it would be like this. They said it was just experimentation. An old man beside Anna spoke up. Kruger said, our kind was inferior, and he swore he'd prove it. (laughs) Clinically, he started with my toes, Captain. But what he did to that poor girl, God, it was unspeakable. And even now, he won't let her die. His damnable Nazi machines (laughs) keep her heart beating. But her soul, Captain, her soul is gone. Please, we can endure no more. Take your gun, Captain, and end our torment. I beg you, Captain, end it now. Gravedigger cocks his MP40 and aims it at the old man, then sprays the ceiling instead. No, I can't play God, damn it. Not like this. Of course you can, Schwartz. Now drop your gun, Schnell. Von Kruger, armed with the Luger, stands behind Gravedigger. He drops his weapon. You are no more a god than this, this Jew. But that's where we differ, you and I. Because I say when she lives, and I say when she dies. And he aims his Luger at Anna's head and fires, as Gravedigger yells, No! Von Kruger hands his smoking pistol to the sentry. Kill him. Prove you are a Nazi and a god. Send him to hell. The sentry raises Luger Gravedigger and whispers, I am a Nazi, my mineral. The pistol fires, and he finds his voice again. But I am not a madman. Von Kruger clutches in his chest in shock and falls to the floor as the young sentry continues. I am not a, a god. I'm a fool. I thought I was fighting for a better world. Gravedigger recovers his weapon as Marie walks in the door. Mama, she screams as tears run down her face. Gravedigger stops her. No, little lady. That ain't her. She... She escaped a long time ago. Sirens start to blare as the American scoops Marie in his arms and they begin to run, leaving the sentry behind. It's over. Isn't it private? The old man wheezes. Soon, they reply. I'm sorry. So very sorry. Outside, Gravedigger hears two shots and the sentry staggers to the window. The old man escaped with Anna. We've all escaped. He slumps out the window, dropping the Luger. The train's whistle sounds as it starts to leave the camp. The other three kids trade fire at the enemy as Gravedigger runs to catch up. Gravedigger and Marie shoot a nearby fuel tank, which explodes and creates a diversion. Running as fast as he can, he catches the train and climbs aboard as the engine smashes through Berkstatten's gates. Marie tells the other kids that they couldn't find their mama, but Gravedigger suggests they might have found a train full as they speed away from the flaming camp. Killjoy was here. History Minute. 
There's a few miscolored swastika flags in the story. Page five, panel five is the most egregious. White on red on white. What the hell, guys? But I'd really like to know who was running the train. Certainly not those three little kids. As I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, the U.S. armed forces were segregated until President Harry Truman ended it in 1948 with Executive Order 9981. For the longest time, it was thought that blacks were cowardly, inferior soldiers. They were thus delegated to menial jobs like truck driver, longshoreman, steward, or gravediggers, which was what Hazard was at issue one of this series until he infiltrates the Pentagon to prove a point. We all know about the Tuskegee Airmen. But there was also the 761st Tank Battalion, also made up primarily of black soldiers. Towards the end of the war, manpower shortages made General Dwight Eisenhower reconsider using black soldiers as infantrymen. Companies are usually made up of four platoons, but in early 1945, a fifth platoon, made up primarily of black soldiers, under white officers, of course, was added to many companies and some divisions. Their performance under fire went a long way to desegregating the military. Read Blood for Dignity by David P. Coley for an in-depth look at these 5th platoons. Gabe Jones and Sergeant Fury, Jackie Johnson and Sergeant Rock, Gus Gray and the Haunted Tank are all great comic characters, but the odds of them being in all-white units in reality are pretty slim. I think Jackie's presence actually got addressed in one issue of Sergeant Rock. All right, very cool. So moving on to the comments and commendations, I'll kick it off. And I got to say, there were some confusing storytelling moments for me in these pages. On page two, when Hazard tosses the guard over the wall, I thought the body was landing inside the camp the way it was set up. And I was left wondering why there was a young woman and a couple of kids wandering the grounds armed with guns. I guess this would have been less of problem to those who'd read the previous issue, which is another nitpick I have, especially for a comic of this vintage. There is precious little of the every issue is someone's first work being done in the scripting or editorial captions here. Also, when Hazard discovers Anna, then the old dude sits up and starts talking on the other side of the room. It would have been nice to have more of an establishment that there was another prisoner in the room. At first, I thought that Anna looked pretty good from a distance, but looked like hell up close. <laughs> and if Kruger had done horrible stuff to Anna before leaving her on life support, it must have all been from the waist down or something, which is disturbing. Add to that the fact that Marie and Anna looked to be exactly the same age, and there was just a ton of visual confusion going on here for me. And to add yet another gripe, I got really tired of Hazard calling Marie Little Lady every time he spoke to her. Kind of like how a certain Captain Hunter constantly refers to someone as a Cupid doll in another series. <laughs> but that's outside the purview here. The art, as I said, fell down in the storytelling department for me and was serviceable, but otherwise unremarkable throughout, in my opinion. This should have been a deeply impactful story, but it ended up leaving me more annoyed than moved. A waste, considering the paucity of African-American protagonists who have crippled legs but can catch up to a moving train while carrying a little lady in their arms. I will say that I adored Mackenzie's opening narrative captions on the splash page. Handler of the dead, a rather ignoble position for a man soon to become legend. But then... 
No one ever said that war is long on logic. Just ask Ulysses Hazard, a man who had to fight not only the enemy, but his own country to earn the codename Gravedigger. But down here we have, while Hazard is climbing the wall, we have the true narrative caption of, It is cold here, despite the raging fires, perhaps because of them, and the dark, smoldering ovens that belch black, putrid smoke into war-torn German skies. Because this is the Nazi nightmare known as Bergstatten. And Ulysses Hazard knows full well he scales the walls of hell itself this night. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is probably one of the darkest DC war stories I think I've ever read. From the Joe Kubert cover of Gravedigger Tangled in Barbed Wire, watching a guarded column of Jews heading for the ovens, to Von Kruger wantonly executing Anna and the discovery of emaciated female prisoners in the barracks. This one was a hard one to get through. The scene with Marie after discovering her mother took a couple of seconds to register also. Along the same lines, however, I could think of no better standalone story slash chapter in this title to use. I think I've mentioned in the past to having been to Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam and visiting the haunting and largely underground Memorial des Martyrs de la Deportation behind Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris dedicated to the living memory of the 200,000 French deportees sleeping in the night in the fog, exterminated in the Nazi concentration camps. Never forget, the world said after the war, but here we are in 2023 with anti-Semitism incidents at record highs in the U.S. I have way too many friends and converted family members that are Jewish to put up with that BS. I'm eternally grateful. I never saw any anti-vaxxers wearing those Star of David patches because they thought they were being persecuted because I might not have been able to control my temper. Don't even pretend the two have anything in common. <sighs> I've also mentioned in the past that I met Dick Ayers before he died and got a total of six big five books signed by him. He is an underappreciated talent. Favorite panels? I'll say page two, panel one of the camp. Smoke pouring out of the stacks and bodies piled up in and next to a mass grave as a train delivers more prisoners. And page eight, panel five, the agony in the old man's face as he begs Gravedigger to shoot him. The comic, Men of War, ran for 26 issues from August 1977 to March 1980. The fun thing about this title was that there were a lot of enemy A stories in the back. I had Larry Hama sign issue eight of the run for doing the pencils for one such story. But the stories ran over multiple issues, which made it hard to select one for this episode. Mademoiselle Marie, the unknown soldier of Sergeant Rock, all made appearances, which is appropriate because I consider Gravedigger to be a combination of the last two. Jerry Grandinetti was the artist for the regular feature Dateline Frontline about a war correspondent. A good middle-of-the-road title, not to be confused with All-American Men of War. All right, so that's two of the next five covered and to kick things off for the third feature of the uh, next five special, I will uh, start us off with Captain Storm, number 17, a little story called First Shot for a Dead Man. It's 14 pages long. Script is by our good buddy Bob Conniger. Art by Irv Novik. Synopsis part one. It was a little something like this. Captain Storm and PT-47 recover the body of an American soldier, or, uh, 
Oh, damn. Somebody be really pissed at me right now. <laughs> well, he's dead too. <laughs> Recover the body of an American sailor floating face down at sea. The sailor's eyes are still open. And there was something about his face that spoke to Captain Storm. Storm could almost imagine the sailor speaking to him. I was killed without firing a shot at the enemy. Help me make my death mean something. Help me fight back just once. And it won't be as if I've died for nothing. Help me. <laughs> the body is taken below as Storm convinces himself that the heat was getting to him. Suddenly, the Japanese destroyer appears and opens fire on the PT-47. Shells explode all around as Storm orders an attack run and launches two torpedoes. Japanese fire destroys one, but the second runs true and slams into the enemy ship. PT-47 speeds off as the destroyer sinks stern first. Later, Storm sat with the blanket-wrapped body of the dead sailor and apologized that he couldn't have fought in the last action. Again, Storm thought he heard the sailor reply. Help me fire shot against the enemy, so I will not have died for nothing. If you were like me, tossed like a useless rag from your torpedoed ship, I would help you strike a blow against the enemy. Help me! Storm returns topside, muttering that you can't win an argument with a dead man. At that moment, the PT boat lurches, and the helmsman called out that they were running aground. In the middle of the Pacific? Impossible! A Japanese sub surfaces directly under them, lifting the PT-47 clear out of the water. As enemy sailors swarm out of the sub, Storm orders his crew to prepare for hand-to-hand -hand combat. The two crews fight eyeball to eyeball until the Japanese retreat to their sub and dive. Almost immediately, a torpedo slices through the water towards the PT boat. Storm orders a hard starboard turn, and the tin fish barely misses. They drop a depth charge in return, and the sub, blown in half by the charger's explosion, breaks the surface before sinking forever. Again, Storm goes below to talk to the covered dead sailor, and again, he hears the sailor's reply. I'm not going to do what you did, Max. I'm sorry. I did nothing. You've got to help me strike just one blow against the enemy so I won't have died in vain. Help me. You're the only one that can. Heading back to port, Storm's JG reported that all the onboard water had gone bad and they needed to stop somewhere to get more. Fortunately, there was a tiny island nearby that was listed as friendly. Hours later, PT-47 stopped there to get fresh water. The crew wondered where all the natives had gone. They soon find out as the water detail hears their boat come under attack. Hiding behind his running crew because of his wooden leg, Storm is attacked by the Japanese troop commander, waving a katana. Storm's pistol jams, and the enemy officer uses his sword to knock the useless weapon out of Storm's hand. As the enemy swings his sword back for the killing blow, Storm parries the attack, and uses a karate move to defeat the officer. The water detail scrambles aboard as the PT's guns duel with the Japanese soldiers ashore before heading out to sea. Yet again, Storm goes below to talk to the covered body, and yet again, he 
hears the reply. When the right time comes, you'll give me the chance to fight, won't you? You won't let my death be so cheap that I couldn't fire one shot against the enemy. You're the only one who could help me. Help me. Storm goes on deck, promising himself he wouldn't talk to the body again. Two enemy fighters suddenly swoop by on an attack run. Return fire blasts one fighter, but the second drops a bomb that explodes alongside. The concussion flattens the entire crew. No one is able to man the guns as the fighter swings around for a second pass. Storm laments, this is the time for that sailor to fire his first shot against the enemy. I wish he only could. It must have been the effects of the blast, because Storm is shocked to see the sailor man a deck gun. I heard you call for me. I'll take over now, Skipper, he cries. He opens fire on the fighter, holding his ground. I'm not dying so cheap this time. He blows the fighter out of the air and the wreckage crashes into the water nearby. The sailor smiles, then vanishes. Storm uses the gun to haul himself to his feet as the JG comes to. You got him, Skipper, he cries. Storm limps below. The blanket that had covered the dead sailor had loosened, and there was a smile on his face that hadn't been there before. Crazy things happen at sea. I wished for him, and he came. He didn't die cheap this time. Killjoy, history minute. It's a 60s DC war comic. How much time do I have? Meatballs galore. Page four, panel four on the destroyer's bow and page 13 and panel six on the fuselage and tail of the downed enemy plane. Page one, panel one, the colors of the rising sun on the conning tower are backwards. Page seven, panel two, no sub has a doorway like that. Page eight, panels one and three, the sub just submerged and they were able to get the distance in mere seconds to fire a torpedo at PT-47? Sure. Just in case there's anyone out there that doesn't think a man with one artificial leg can't fight, allow me to introduce you to a man that fought with two. Sir Douglas Bader was a Royal Air Force flying ace during the Second World War. He was credited with 22 aerial victories, four shared victories, and six probables. Bader joined the RAF in 1928 and was commissioned in 1930. In December 1931, while attempting some aerobatics, he crashed and lost both his legs around the knee. Having been on the brink of death, he recovered, retook flight training, passed his check flights, and then requested reactivation as a pilot. Although there were no regulations applicable to the situation, he was retired against his will on medical grounds. After the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, however, Douglas Bader returned to the RAF and was accepted as a pilot. He scored his first victories over Dunkirk during the Battle of France in 1940. He then took part in the Battle of Britain. In August 1941, Bader was forced to bail out over German-occupied France and was captured. Having an artificial leg actually saved his life when it was pinned in the cockpit, and he was able to break the strap attaching it to his body. Soon afterward, he met and was befriended by Adolf Gowland, a prominent German fighter ace, who permitted the British to drop a replacement leg to him. Despite his disability, Bader made a number of escape attempts and was eventually sent to the escape-proof prison camp at Colditz Castle. He remained there until April 1945 when the camp was liberated by the 1st United States Army. Total badass. Comments and combinations. This is one of the go-go check comics our buddies at the Checkered Pass podcast are covering, although I don't know if they've covered this particular issue yet. A weird war tale. 
I really like Novik's art here. One could argue he's a bit heavy-handed on the inks, but it doesn't seem to detract from the story. I'll call out three panels. Page three panels, two and three. PT-47 blown into a 45-degree list from a near miss. Men holding on for their lives as storm bellows orders, really capturing the action. Page seven panels, one and two. The classic whack, wham, thud, free-for-all between the two crews is everything you could hope for. And page 13, panel three, battle smoke swirls around the resurrected sailor as he answers Storm's call. Okay, Nahan, as usual, we I have to stop and, and thank you for digging up that spotlight on <laughs> Vader, the baddest man in the whole damn town. <laughs> uh, that That is incredible. And as usual, some of the stuff you dig up for the history minutes is crazier than the stuff we read in any of these comic books. <laughs> so, so just fantastic. Like that, that, that blows my mind. So in the same vein, this was a really fun comic book for me. In spite of all the nitpicking I'm about to do, or in part because of something. First of all, the art by Novik seems so desperate to look like Joe Kubert's work that it seriously overdoes it with the emulation of some of Kubert's works. Foremost of all is the addition of seemingly hundreds of arbitrary lines on characters' faces, especially Storms. Page 3, panel 5 being perhaps the most egregious example. One of the nitpicks that added to my enjoyment was the fact that the story could have just as easily been entitled Captain Storm's Inevitable Psychotic Break. His conversations with the dead soldier's corpse are just increasingly unhinged as they go on. And I like the moment when he got caught talking to himself on page five, panel four. As for the resolution of the story, I found myself thinking, head trauma and rigor mortis, one hell of a combo. I threw some shade at the shading in the art, but otherwise Novik just blew this issue out of the water. Also, the action and movement on the water is particularly dynamic and engaging. Page four, panels four to five, page nine, panel five, check them out. And the use of one of my favorites, call out circular spotlight panels, throughout the story is really well done. Page one, panel two, page two, panel two, and so on. Being a Larry Hama-bred G.I. Joe fan myself, I loved all the casual military jargon being tossed around, like tin fish, torp, and roll out the barrel, all on page eight. It's fun for me. It's how I learned any military language was Larry Hama dropping that stuff in and explaining what he meant in a little caption. And lest I forget... The cover to this issue was flat out awesome. This was a big, fun thumbs up for me. I loved it. Okay. The comic, Captain Storm, PT Boat Skipper, ran for 18 issues from May, June 1964 to March, April 1967. No doubt the the title was inspired by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963, who was the skipper of PT-109 during the war. I read the book PT-109 by Robert Scott Donovan and made the model kit, as did everyone in the 1960s. The popular sitcom McHale's Navy ran from 1962 to 1966 and centered around PT boats also. Like the swastika armband and the field gripe I always have, Captain Storm had a bunch of repeating issues. 
PT-47 was sunk any number of times, but Storm was always given a new boat with the same number. This isn't the haunted tank where you can just get a new tank when the last one gets blown up. New boat, new number. Yeah, I know. Comic book familiarity. Whatever. And also, Captain Storm is not a captain. The railroad tracks he wears in the Navy represents a lieutenant. But on page three here, he is repeatedly shown wearing only one bar, which is an ensign or a junior grade lieutenant or JG. A captain in the Navy is a full bird colonel in the Army, a fatal mistake non-Navy types have no doubt made countless times, and the score PT-47 ran up against the Japanese Navy is totally unrealistic. But that's not what a war comic fan in 1966 cared about. A fun title all around. And hey, here's a fun fact. The Losers began in 1970 and came from an in-house joke stemming from the fact that all of its members had lost their titles or headlining gigs in them. Storm folded in 67. Johnny Cloud's All-American Men of War was canceled in 1966 after 116 issues. And Gunner and Sarge were booted from featuring our fighting forces in 1965, which folded in 1978 after 181 issues. And it's worth noting, uh, as late as I discovered them, the losers were always a favorite team of mine. Maybe I was just drawn to them by the name. Like I, I was drawn by the name, the doom patrol and other underdog sounded things like that. But, but to find that I enjoyed an issue of captain storm so much kind of shows that I would have liked probably all of these books. Cause I liked when they all teamed up in the losers. That was a heck of a third title. And for this fourth and final title of the remaining next five, I'm going to kick it off. This one's a doozy. So hang on, Tony. This is All Out War number one. The title of the story is The Origin of the Viking Commando. This is an 18-pager script by reliable Bob Conagher, art by super accurate George Evans. Synopsis for part one called D-Day for a Viking goes like this. A jeep carrying Major Graham and three other GIs through a foggy Norman countryside strikes a landmine as it approaches a wooden bridge over a river. The Major and another GI survive the blast and a unit of SS attack to finish the dazed Americans off. An unearthly cry startles the Major as a blonde bearded Viking waving an axe suddenly attacks the Germans. Oh, mighty Odin! You have heard my plea, even in distant Valhalla's halls, to battle the Huns again. One German is knocked into the river with a mighty swing, deflecting the enemy fire with the blade of his axe, Iron Fang. The Viking continues his attack and pushes three more into the river. The battle continues underwater until the foe are either killed or swept away. Pulling himself ashore, the Valkyrie, Fay steps out of the mist. Now, Valoric, you must let me bury you to Valhalla. It is my task. Not until my heart stops beating, he replies. Oh, mighty Odin, come out of the mist. Hear my tale and judge. Odin obliges, and Valoric begins to tell his tale. Flashback. 
Valoric or Valoric, his longship sailed along the coast of the Huns' land on a mission to free King Sigro and his daughter Thella. Thella? Tella? I don't know. They will either succeed or Odin will see the Vikings die a warrior's death. Part two. One man army. The Vikings climb a rock face, surprise the enemy, and liberate the king and princess. As Thella wraps her grateful arms around Valoric, she senses a presence in the room. He cannot see the jealous Valkyrie Fae watching the two embrace. Leaving the castle in flames behind them, the Vikings race back to their longship, only to see their way blocked by the Huns. The Vikings tear into the Huns, giving the king time to escape the princess. They can see their dead being carried off to Valhalla's eternal halls by the Valkyrie maids. The Vikings fight well, but the Huns are too many. Soon only Valoric remains, and he falls, badly wounded. Faye eagerly sweeps, swoops in to carry him to Valhalla, but a mighty wind buffets them and drives them away from Valhalla in a swirling vortex. They land in a grassy field next to a bridge by a stream. Valoric stirs, and Faye is shocked. You are not dead? I seem to have slept in eternity, and time heals all wounds, Valoric replies. He is startled to see a jeep drive by and wonders what kind of strange cart that is when the Germans pour out of the woods to attack the jeep survivors after it hits the mine. Valoric recognizes them as Huns. I can smell their kind no matter their disguise, and attacks. Back to the present. Odin listens thoughtfully to Valoric's strange tale. Valoric doesn't care where or when he is. He just wants to battle the Hun. Fake claims Valoric is hers to escort to Valhalla. But Odin offers his stern judgment. Fay had tried taking Valoric to Valhalla before he was truly dead. A cosmic storm wrenched them out of time to this place. They will both stay here as exiles until Valoric dies. Only then will either of them be allowed to enter Valhalla. Then... He vanishes. Major Graham can't see Faye as he runs up to Valoric. I need a guerrilla fighter like you on our side. Unofficially. Only brawlers like you can win against the Nazis. Nazis? What tribe is that? Valoric asks. Tribe? Well, World War I, they were called Huns, but Huns? They are a Viking's mortal enemy. Gladly will I meet them in combat. As Faye watches, the Major places his arm on Valoric's shoulder as the two men walk off. As long as you fight like a one-man army, you can call yourself a Viking commando for all I care. I love that part where they say the title in the story. <laughs> so, synopsis part three is called Tank versus Titan. Trying to get Valoric to join a modern army is met with limited success. He refuses to cut his hair and still prefers throwing Iron Fang to firing rifles and Tommy guns. But... A radio call comes in. Two companies of GIs are trapped in a forest, being slaughtered by rockets from a castle they were sent to occupy. They need help. Worse, the Germans are monitoring the American transmission. They break in with a call of their own from Countess de Lysis. Her family and all of the villagers are being held captive in the castle. Any counter-bombardment by the Americans will kill hundreds of innocents. Major Graham slams his hand on the radio. It's a no-win situation. Valoric has overheard the exchange and swears to seize the castle by mighty Odin or be slain. 
he's dressed like a GI now from the waist down. From the waist up, he still has his fur over shirt, long hair, and a blonde beard and mustache, but has discarded his horned helmet. Grenades hang from his belt, and he clutches Iron Fang and a knife in his hands. Valoric runs into the forest, and Faye follows, eager to carry him to Valhalla to be hers for all eternity. <laughs> Not sure that's how it works, Faye, but we're moving on. <laughs> Later, as a German tank bears down on, on, on outmatched GIs, Valoric leaps down on it from a tree. As Faye watches, the stunned tank commander fires a hasty burst from his MP40 before being dispatched by Iron Fang. A second swing from Valoric's axe jams the tank's hatch open, so he can drop in two grenades. Running off as the tank explodes, Valoric stops at the castle's moat and pitches Iron Fang at the drawbridge. The axe is embedded in thick wood. Valoric then throws himself over the moat and catches himself by Iron Fang's handle. Using his knife and axe, Valoric pulls himself hand over hand up the drawbridge until he gets inside the castle. Running up a flight of stairs, he sees the shadows of Germans on the curved wall coming towards him. A burst of Tommy gun fire from Valoric ricochets off the wall and kills them. Reaching the ramparts, Valoric is distracted by the sight of the Countess and her daughter. Hmm. And doesn't see the Germans behind him before being knocked unconscious by a blow to the head. The German officer decides to have some fun. He orders Valoric placed in a vintage catapult on the rampart. On his command, the catapult will launch the maniac at the advancing Americans. Then they'll fire another salvo of rockets. Far below, Major Graham has joined the GIs and sees a flailing body sailing through the air from the castle's ramparts. Graham assumes it's Valoric, <laughs> and as the body slams into some nearby rocks, laments it was a terrible way to die. In actuality, Valoric had come to in time and had grabbed the German officer. He dragged the German onto the catapult, then rolled away as the catapult launched. Valoric then scoops up his Tommy gun, hoses down the nearby Germans before lobbing a grenade at the rocket launchers. Grabbing the two civilians, Valoric dives for, dives for cover as the massive explosion destroys the enemy position. Later, as Major Graham congratulates Valoric at the castle's entrance, Faye simmers nearby. Laugh now, Valoric. You've cheated death and me again, but I will take you sooner or later. To Valhalla. Killjoy! This has been addressed in the past that Viking helmets didn't have horns, as Valoric wore in parts one and two. In the 1800s, Scandinavian artists like Gustav Malmström depicted Vikings in horned headgear. This may have been due to the discovery of the aforementioned horned hats, or from Greek and Roman accounts of northerners wearing adorned hats. Those Greek and Roman accounts predate the actual Vikings. Perhaps the person most responsible for popularizing horned Viking hats was Carl Emil Doppler, the comic designer for Wagner's opera Der Ring der Nibelin. His Viking costumes featured horned helmets. This style was later repeated in the famous Bugs Bunny cartoon, What's Opera Doc? Continuing the famous image. The horn's practicality of actual combat is dubious at best. 
sure they could help intimidate enemies and maybe even poke out a few eyes, but in but they would have been even more likely to get entangled on a tree branch or embedded in a shield, or worse, given an enemy something to hold on to. And I suppose I can nitpick having a vintage catapult all primed and ready to go on the castle's ramparts, too. Yes, I, I suppose you can. <laughs> <laughs> just i love the image of the like a viking rider and the horn gets caught on a branch overhead and just yoink that being said comments and commendations uh will start like this from me this it was an overall uh, another overall fun one that i had just one really big nitpick about that being those damned or verdammit translation captions. They suck. I don't know who had the idea to break with the comic book tradition of putting the foreign language in brackets and having one asterisk leading to one caption that says, translated from the fill-in-the-blank language, each time a non-English bit of dialogue appears for the first time. But whoever it was, they were hopefully drowned in hate mail about it. This technique is used throughout the story, and it brings the reading experience to a halt every single time. Ah. So for those of you who you know, don't have the issue on hand, you have full dialogue written out in German and then a full translation caption saying what that means in English. So double the space in the panel, double everything. Just not great. I did end up liking the kind of incongruous 60s sitcom setup of bumbling, love-struck Valkyrie Faye having to watch her chosen, not quite slain, keep on living and potentially loving while she waits around, punished by Odin, for choosing her slain a little prematurely. And I love a good pun, but man, after Faye and Val come out of the cosmic storm, Val, as Rich quoted, explains his hale and hearty condition with the line, time heals all wounds. Duh. Even I, even I flinched at that one. So that's on page nine, panel two. I don't know whether to high five him or beg Odin to smite him for that one. But one of my favorite moments is the catapulted commando, or was it, that plays out on pages 16 to 17. Panel 2 on page 17 was more than funny enough for me to forgive the extremely clumsy way that the switch was explained. And I love a good split feature cover, and this issue had a great one. And, and also, there's just, as you heard in the synopsis, the crazy action on the part of Valoric. Like, what an incredible unhinged badass he is, is incredibly entertaining and well-drawn. So I'm pretty pleased with this one overall. Valkyries are supposed to be valiant warriors in their own right, if the Thor movies have taught me anything. Faye constantly fretting over her longing for Valark kind of rings the old comics man bell for me pretty robustly here. Evans does a solid job on the art duties. My favorite two panels are on page seven, panel four, where the Valkyries carry off the Viking dead during their battle with the Huns in front of a wall of flames. Sidebar. Vlork is the only living combatant wearing the horned helmet in the whole story. The dead being carried off all happen. So close to me not having my primary killjoy. For a chuckle, we'll also go with page 11, panel 1, where Vlork tosses the GI barber out of his tent. <laughs> the comic. 
All Out War was a giant battle book like GI Combat for 59 issues from 1977 to 1983 that ran for only six issues from September, October 1979 to July, August 1980. You can't tell me that Viking Commander wasn't directly inspired by the Viking Prince who teamed up with Sergeant Rock in Our Army at War 162 and 163 in early 1966. To parrot my thoughts from Blitzkrieg, I don't know how long a temporarily misplaced Viking was going to be able to be the headliner of a new war comic. And Faye constantly pining for Valor to die so she can take him to Valhalla is at the same time morbid and tiresome. There are recurring Gunner Sergeant Pooch backup stories that I like. We had a black P-38 pilot called the Black Eagle. When I first saw the logo, I thought it was the Blackhawks. Regularly teams up with the Haunted Tank. He didn't last long either. GI Combat did it better. But, so, anyway, to wrap, DC had six war books in 1980, and the end was coming. This title and Men of War were scrapped that year. Unknown Soldier went down in 1982 after 268 issues, and Weird War Tales 1983 after 124. Sergeant Rock and GI Combat would hold out until 1988 and 87, respectively, with 422 and 245, respectively. So yeah, WWT ended up holding out for quite a while. So, no mailbag this time, so let's look for some fun stuff. In the very back of Blitzkrieg, we have a Sam Glansman battle album, the Dornier Nightfighter DO-335A. That looks weird, right? God, the Germans came up with some crazy stuff. Officially called the Arrow, it was nicknamed the Anteater by its crews. The first known encounter with Allied aircraft was with the Hawker Tempests as portrayed here. But no aircraft were downed. I'll read a little bit from the, from the story here. In Hitler's Germany, another super weapon emerged from the drawing boards. But red tape and jealousy between high-ranking officials created its downfall. One of the largest single-seat fighters ever built at the time, and a weapon that could have changed the outcome of the war, was squashed. As with many of Germany's aircraft, it had an ejection seat, which, when operated also blew explosive bolts securing the dorsal fin, preventing the pilot from smashing into the tail during ejection. In the event of a belly landing, the ventral tail could also be blown. Two Daimler-Benz DB503 engines driving three bladed propellers and a GMI nitrous oxide injection gave this ship an appreciable edge over the hottest Allied prop-driven fighters. Allied bombing raids at the head of the Hinkle Aircraft Company ignoring orders to suspend production of their HE-219 aircraft to supply similarly required parts of the arrow resulted in only 37 being built before the war's end. I had a model of this thing when I was a kid. There's one surviving example being restored for the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Great to have you back, Sam. Very cool. My, my fun comes from, my, you know, I'll just say it, a favorite issue of the ones we looked at, Captain Storm. In the middle of the pages of this issue, we have a little military humor gag thing. You know, page of, of jokes and yucks called Navy Jives. And it's actually not bad. Three out of four of them got as much of a chance out of me as any random newspaper gag I might have read as a kid back in the day. To me, this was amazing, considering our, uh, our practice with 
you know, military humor comic pages in the comics we've been talking about. These were pretty good. Paired too, the reason I'm raving about this so much is I saw this page and I was like, oh dear God, another page of humor in a military comic. And I actually kind of smiled at three out of the four. I mean, one of them is just gruesome, but you know, that in, in, in its own way, that's kind of funny. But uh, you, you'll see it in the album. So a rare win for the military humor gag page for me. So fun stuff out of the way. We're going to talk about some more fun stuff. We're each going to pick a spotlighted ad from one of these four comics. And I stayed right within the pages of Captain Storm. and didn't go too far into it, actually. This is like right on the inside cover, I believe. This is an ad for Ravel racetracks so what makes this one special is this is for an enormous racetrack that's the one spotlighted in the picture the powered racetrack with slot cars so you got slots in the track cars fit into them you got little controllers that you increase the speed or slow them down i'm sure we've talked about car racing in the show before but this pictured here is a monster. It's obviously an example of the biggest track at the cage. It's, you know, be a five foot, four lane high track or a 50 foot, two lane track. But what makes it even better is this ad just uh, has some of the greatest descriptors. It has like your selling points, like five selling points for the Ravel racetracks. Number one is a track that can take it. <laughs> yeah, a layout you can change. Cars that are built to take it again. My favorite, number four, controllers that stay cool. Ravel controllers have ample ventilating slots to ensure cool operation. In addition, the case is made of heat-resisting glass-filled nylon. The controllers are shaped to fit in your hand. They have a one-piece no-tangle cord and just plug into the track. That sounds like a whole lot of caution about these controllers like this time we made controllers that won't explode in your hand and set the house on fire <laughs> and then right below that's a power pack with enough power which also sounds like a promise that this racetrack will not just be a giant potential house fire i just wonder who in the world was allowed to have this 25 to 50 foot racetrack in their house the ad shows like four dudes you know, four kids laying around with this thing set up in what must be at least the size of your average living room and nothing nearby them. It may be in the basement somewhere, but I cannot imagine. But this thing was just the coolest ad to me, especially because of the emphasis on this can take some punishment and it won't burst into flame. So that one won easily for me. Well, just as you stayed in Captain Storm, I stayed in Blitzkrieg, the $6 million man action figure by Kenner. All the excitement, all the realism, all the bionic action. Colonel Steve Austin, a backpack radio that really works. Bionic transport and repair station. See through his bionic eye. You work his powerful bionic arm. It actually lifts the engine block that comes with Colonel Austin. I had this toy as a kid. I'm old enough to remember the TV show, too. And the bionic woman. Looking through his bionic eye is a bit creepy, though. It's almost like you're looking through an exit wound in the back of his skull. Ick. Look at me pick up this engine block with one hand. Because... 
you know, I can, and that's a handy daily skill. Just don't get any oil on my 1970s orange truck shoot with a wide collar. I need to go out. I need to go out and rewatch, like you know the uh, you know the show opening for this thing. At so at some point, remember that the pianic noise. It's probably on like two B TV or something. As far as the engine block goes, if you could, wouldn't you? Just to shake it, people to let them know I meant business. Oh yeah, darn kids. To those toys too, the six million dollar man, and of course I had to have Max the Bionic Dog. <laughs> so just had to. With those super cool '70s ads out of the way, we're gonna move on to a regular section we like to call "Got Any Last Word." Yeah, I'll admit this was a lot more work than I planned on skimming through 55 books, looking for a good story, and then looking for ads and assorted fun stuff in the four winning issues, etc. Some of the selected stories are pretty long for scripting processes, too. But we got the rest of the DC War book titles there, too. After some prolonged waffling, my favorite story is, as I'm sure Max will agree, first shot for a dead man between the 1960s hoo-ha, actual weirdness, and the fun history minute. Now, I got to say, as we were recording this episode, I changed my mind from what I scripted and gotten last words here. Um, Captain Storm, first shot for a dead man, runs away with it for me on, on you know, re-experiencing it going through recording the episode. It was neck and neck, the Viking commando. But just the translation captions really, really hurt Viking commando and the running. And Captain Storm was just too freaking crazy to not be my favorite. So I liked three out of the four here. I, I liked Blitzkrieg a little more than you. Um, I agree that wouldn't have been a great idea for a, a long running series. So it wasn't. But, you know, Gravedigger was just too... Too choppy in the execution for me to enjoy. So Captain Storm takes the PT-47 and rides to the lead for me. There we go. That's our that's our last words for this excellent side trip special project episode. And uh, again, Rich mentioned all the work he had to do. Yeah, he did. He had to filter all the stuff through, and I just get to waltz in. He's like, dee, 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 dee. thanks for doing all the heavy lifting, Rich. Dee, 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 dee. <laughs> go, oh, four stories. I guess they're okay. And Rich just. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks, well, Nave, for doing all the hard stuff. <laughs> really settles in on Rich. Um, we're going to move on to another regular section of our episodes called the Dead Letter Office, where we talk about interacting with our fans. Uh, one way you can do that is to go to redbubble.com, look for the Weird Warriors podcast, and hit the Weird Warriors podcast PX, and get our awesome logo designed and drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business on any damn thing you can imagine. Rich also has a link up on the Facebook page that'll take you right to our stuff because Redbubble isn't that great a website, but hey, that's where our stuff is. Also, in the Dead Letter office, we like to mention people who stop by social media, Facebook, Twitter, and all that, to give us some likes and all that kind of stuff. So visitors this time around included FPI Glasgow, Wayne Burroughs, Martin Gray, The Telltale Mind, Coffee and Comics, Mike Romero, 
Doc Strange, which is Mr. Billy Delicious, Ranger Gord of the Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast, which is on a bit of a hiatus right now or on pause, so you got time to catch up. I, I, I have to elaborate. If you listen to comic book podcasts, if you like old comics, listen to Prairie Justice. He puts it on like a radio show. It's amazing. And, you know, if he sees the numbers go up, maybe he'll record some new episodes. <laughs> Tim DeForest stopped by Bill Mooney, Luke Giaconetti, Herschel Mimis, and Clinton Robison also stopped by. Now, over on our Gmail account, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, we got visits from Tim DeForest, the aforementioned Tim DeForest of the old comics and radio Blogspot blog, and he wrote in to say he especially appreciated this episode, issues 14 and 28, so we're talking about Weird War Tales number 28 here primarily, were the two I remembered most vividly from my childhood. I wrote about number 14 on my blog a few years ago, says Tim, so I've had reason to think about the story critically. I've also reread Weird War Tales number 28 as an adult, but I realized when listening to this episode that I had always still looked at it through the eyes of a preteen. So it was great to hear you two discuss it. I can still enjoy it through my preteen eyes, which is pretty much still my emotional age, but being able to appreciate little ironies, such as the colonel disciplining his cat with electricity, then dying by electricity is also pretty neat. Thanks for a great episode. The encounter with the ants in the tunnel didn't make me think of Ant-Man, Tim says, but rather the 1954 science fiction classic Them, which ends with soldiers fighting giant ants in the sewers of Los Angeles. Also in our Gmail inbox, we found our old friend and constant companion, Jason Zeller, the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He wrote in about Weird War Tales number 26 and 27, and he had this to say about Weird War Tales number 26. This had a classic Weird War Tales cover to me with the skeleton soldier advancing on a hapless soldier. I think of these covers when I remember Weird War Tales. In The Survivor, I totally missed the pronunciation of DeVille as the devil, but did think he was either the devil or a time traveler. The classic evil-looking goatee helped as well. I, too, thought he bumped his fellow soldier's aim so he could finish the victim off up close and personal and did not see the Hitler reveal coming. He comments on jumping to hell and a time to die. And in a time to die, he mentions, was almost a carbon copy of a, wait for it, Twilight Zone episode. You don't say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was called King Nine Will Not Return and was set in North Africa. About number 27, uh, Jason says, Survival of the Fittest was an interesting time warp purgatory Groundhog Day type story. For real, I love that one. For the general, he also figured it was a computer that was coming at the end. And that the veteran was interesting with the spaceship designs, but otherwise, you know, with the flimsy reveal of it being a 15-year-old veteran, there was not much else to the story. And I, I kind of agree. So... That is the, the Dead Letter Office. That's four of the next five covered. It, four of the other next five besides Weird War Tales that we are so dedicated to here at the show. So we're done, folks. All that's left is for Rich to tease you with what's next. Spoiler alert. We've just officially entered what's going to be an interesting run of episodes. But next, 
Weird War Tales number 35. Vampires for Max. World War I aviation for me. Abominable snowmen for whoever wants them. There's something for everyone. Tune in and see if I'm lying. I mean, would we lie to you at this point? Come on now. You can trust, well, Rich, anyway. I don't know about me. But uh, before you consider that too deeply, let me remind you, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Batland Bros. I have been Max. He has been Rich. And we promise to make war. Noble.